What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell this story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. So last week's episode really got me thinking and it really got me thinking how much uh, knowledge, culture and events we owe to the uh, tradition of ancient great Greek philosophy. Yeah, I would uh, I would definitely agree with that. Yeah. And so it got me thinking how we did an episode kind of on stoicism and storytelling. And it made me think, could we go a little deeper? Is there other Greek philosophy out there that works in storytelling um, that can maybe tell us a little bit more about the nature of storytelling, the nature of philosophy, and maybe by virtue of that, learn a little more about the world and potentially open up new avenues. So I thought we should explore that for this week's episode. What do you think? I think that's a great idea. And I think we've chosen a lens for this episode that is a really uh, popular philosophy out there now. It's it's experiencing definitely a resurgence in the way that it's taught and experienced. There are some sort of postmodern versions of this philosophy. Is it? Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, I mean, if you've gone to college and took and taken, took and whatever the right word is, philosophy 101, you know of the ancient Greeks and you know of their main schools of thought. Right. Beyond that, I didn't realize there was a resurgence of any like classical Greek philosophical thought. Well, you also have to look at the influences of these schools of thought and the uh, sort of new uh, avenues by which those schools are being experienced. So there are entirely different spiritual groups, religious groups, philosophical groups that take all of their cues from so many of those influences. Uh, And I think we'll talk about some of those tonight. But let's stop being coy. What's the uh, what's the philosophical school of thought that we are going to be entering tonight with? So I thought we'd delve into Plato a little bit and see if Plato's legacy, philosophical legacy, has cast a storytelling shadow. Right out of the gate, that's a huge net. Yeah, no, I definitely think that Plato has been really influential on my life. I know that when I was a kid, I used to like push it through those little like squiggly things where you would make the spaghetti out of Play-Doh. And I sometimes like to eat it because it was a little salty and kind of weird tasting. I'm sure everybody did that. But so, it was really influential to my uh, yeah. maturity. Yeah, that's not what we're talking about. You're talking about the word play combined with the word dough. Yeah. So I'm talking about the man, Plato. Totally Wait, separate. What? Totally different things. Rewind. Yeah, back up here. 
Play-Doh and Play-To are not the same thing. You know, this is starting to like blow a huge hole in everything I prepared for tonight. Oh my gosh, should we should we just make this entire episode a boomerang for you? Yeah, let's do it. Yo, we've been throwing around boomerang. For, if you're new to the show, a midnight myth boomerang is when I fucked up and I meant to say here's a curveball, but instead I said here's a boomerang. Yeah, so now boomerang has become, you know, when we introduce something to the room that we hadn't uh, already prepared or talked about, and it puts the other person on the spot in terms of coming up with a, a response. Yeah, it's a boomerang. So anyway, I figured in case you're new to the show and haven't listened to the backlogs, that's why we're talking about boomerangs. Anyway, diving deep into this Plato fellow, right? So Plato is known for starting the school of thought called Platonism um, or Plutonic is the other word for it, was an ancient Greek Athenian. And he just followed around this guy, Socrates, and wrote down what Socrates said. Because Socrates didn't write down what he said. So everything we know of Plato's philosophy comes through the lens of what are called Socratic dialogues. Right. Meaning the conversations that Socrates had. Now, Socrates taught his, his philosophy just by having conversations with people, and he made it his mission sort of poke holes into establishment thinking. And from that, a fully fleshed out, nuanced and complex philosophy emerged that's now called Platonism. Yeah, yeah. And and one particular uh, philosophical problem or thought Plato vis-a-vis Socrates worked out was the form, the forms. And in particular, I'd like to discuss the forms and its relation to storytelling. And if there are examples, contemporary examples of Plato's forms and the the story I really want to highlight as the example is the movie came out in 1999. Damn good year for movies. Being John Malkovich. Yeah. Uh, very good year for movies. If again, you're new to the podcast or even if you've been listening for a while, I think we'll touch on a few things tonight that we talked about in our 1999 episode. We talked about a few movies that were made in that year that highlighted the real, uh, the cracks in the Pax Americana uh, sort of era that we went through as a country. Uh, and there are a lot of things that we'll, that we'll see tonight, uh, questions about uh, truth, authenticity, and reality that we touch on in that episode too. So I would definitely go back and listen to that. Uh, I'll put something in the show notes about what episode name that is. I think it was called Pox Americana. You're probably right. Yeah. Um, it was way back in like episode four or five or yeah, something like that. Yeah, it was pretty that. early. Um, would I be correct in saying, um, this is definitely going to be a boiled down version of this, but uh, I think a lot of the legacy that we get from Socrates and the philosophies that we associate with Socrates are generally epistemological, right? So they refer to uh, theories of knowledge and how we think and how we experience the way that we think about the world, right? Well, and then Plato. Are you, well, so all of Plato is through Socrates, hundred percent of it. Well, all of Socrates is through Plato. I mean, Plato, to my knowledge, didn't did nothing but write down Socrates' words. Oh, yeah. Wait, really? Yeah. All Plato did was write down what Socrates said. He like didn't have a single original thought. Well, so that's a really huge debate that classicists have. If you're unfamiliar with the term classicist, this is someone that studies the period of time of classical Greece and Rome, otherwise known as ancient Greek and Rome. So a classicist will debate, was Socrates real? Um, Because there are only two sources for Socrates' life. 
that is uh, the playwright Aristophanes and Plato. Plato, all, all of Plato's philosophy came through the character Socrates writing down his dialogues. Whoa, okay, this is a totally exciting breakthrough for me to understand. But essentially the distinction that I was about to draw was between epistemological philosophies and ontological philosophies. I think tonight we're going to more focus on ontological, which is like theory of being and the understanding of what is. Yeah, but if you were going, hey, there's a difference between Socrates and Plato, there isn't. Wow. There is no there is no distinction, there is no line. I need a breather. Yeah, Plato is generally considered and given credit because no one is 100% sure if Socrates even lived. Right. Dear listeners, if you can't tell already, I only took Eastern philosophy classes in college and not Western, so my understanding of Western philosophy is mostly from Wikipedia and YouTube, which, I mean, are are sometimes pretty scholarly, but... I do not discredit the modern sources for information at all. Not at all. I don't I don't at all. Um I don't think you should only rely on them like you can't watch no, a YouTube video not. and be an expert in Plato, but it certainly gives you a good idea and you can get somewhere from it. Yeah. And if you want suggestions for YouTube videos about Plato, I'm your man. You just mm-hmm. tweet at me people um at Midnight Myth. Anyway. Yeah, and we'll share a couple from our Twitter this week as companions for the podcast, I think. We can. Yeah. We can. Anyway, we, now we said that we have to do it. Anyway, so um, so yeah, but you're right. Plato had a robust philosophy. Right. It covered every area of the main philosophical schools developed by the Greeks. We're going to be delving into the metaphysical. So it it basic Plato 101. He had this theory called the cave. The idea being, if you are chained to a Uh, the floor, looking at the wall of a cave, and behind you there's a fire, and you can't turn around because the chains are that tight, and everything that you see on the wall is the shadow of the thing. So if I'm standing there in the cave, I can't turn around, all I can see is this wall, all I ever see is the shadow version of myself. If someone puts a chair there, all I ever see is the shadow version of the chair, so on and so forth. If I were suddenly to be broken free from this chain and leave the cave and seeing the whole world, I would be completely blown away and overwhelmed. And if I went back to said cave and tried to tell everyone of the world outside that had butterflies and snow and trees and all these other things and all these colors. And a third dimension. And uh, people would look at me in that cave that had never seen it they would probably think I was lying and Plato even postulized that they would kill me for being so far and different and outside the norm. Right. And from challenging their narrow worldview, there's a lot at play here in uh, Plato's allegory of the cave. Uh, He uses it an allegory, of course, being a a story or a parable that stands for a larger thing or a larger idea. Uh, What's going on here is Perhaps the world that we live in is simply a box, is simply a cave in which we see imperfect copies of something more real than what we are experiencing now. Maybe reality is a higher level. And this is where uh, Plato comes up with his, uh, his world of the forms, the realm of the forms. Uh, the idea there being that if I have a cup, 
I have this thing that lives in in three dimensions that I can hold and I can drink things out of, and maybe it's made out of plastic. All I really have is a facsimile or a uh, you know a, a copy of the essence of cup, the conception or the universal idea of cup, which is something that lives outside and abstracted from the reality that I experience on an everyday level. And in this allegory of the cave, that's everything. Everything is part of this universal essence that is kind of a level of reality abstracted, but more real than the reality that we experience. I would call it the separation of substance and essence. Mm -hmm. So I have a substance and it's material and it's wood. I take wood and I turn it into a chair. And now I have this chair and I sit on this chair and it's a substance. And in in Platonic thinking, the, the world of substance is constantly in flux. It's constantly in change. Now that chair, there's a fire and now it's burned and now it's embers. Yeah. Then those embers over time disintegrate and they turn into something else. That's the material world. But what was the essence of wood to begin with? Where did wood come from? <clears throat> when wood is changed from one thing to another, there's this new idea in, in reality called a chair. What is the chair? What is the essence of a chair? And in maybe in Platonic thinking, the chair that we see is just a reflection on the cave, on the wall of the cave, that our perception can only see things in the material, but there is a world of just pure essence from which the material world is derived. Right. Yeah. This, this realm of pure being, uh, and I, I was saying at the beginning of the episode, there are many philosophies and schools of spirituality that are born out of this idea of the universal or the one essence. And you see its influence all over Christian uh, philosophy, Christian thinking. Um, you also see this in, uh, in universalism, which is derived specifically from Neoplatonism, uh, the idea of the one, the idea of the universal. And that translates religiously... Uh, in both universalism as a religious school and then Hinduism, which is heavily influenced by universalism, this translates as an idea of sort of universal communion with the divine. So you can see the way that this philosophy has influenced uh, so much all over the world and the way that it really does sink into our subconscious, this idea that there's something higher than the world of the material. Fun fact, several of the intellectual... Um, sort of jump off points from the pagan into the Roman Catholic all came at the backs of Platonists who got converted to Christianity, yeah. who then became high-ranking priest members. So Platonism is definitely baked into early Christian thought Absolutely. and early Christian thinking um, there just by default of, hey, if you've studied this one thing your whole life and now you're studying and making this other thing, there's going to be some overlap there. Yeah. Um, so yeah, interesting point there. So let's dive into, and I just want to qualify this. One can go to school and get a doctorate in Plato. So please, by no stretch of the imagination, think this is an exhaustive discussion of Plato and right. his forms. Yeah. This is meant to be like 101 for dummies. Like, let keeping it as simple. I'm going to be honest. There are things that Plato has said that I haven't read and then go over my head too. So it's by no stretch of the imagination exhaustive, but a cursory, let's talk about what the forms are 
and the idea that maybe reality is a copy of another reality and um, dive into our story, which is being John Malkovich. Yeah. Sound fun? Pivot time? Totally fun. Here comes the pivot. So now we're into being John Malkovich. Major spoiler wall. We're going to talk about as much of this movie as time will allow because I don't think there's a scene that goes by that we can't somehow link to Plato. If you haven't seen it, if you have a Stars account, it's streaming for free. If you uh, you can rent it on iTunes and Amazon for two or three bucks, and uh, I mean it's worth the fifteen bucks to just buy because yeah. the movie's fucking brilliant. And I believe it was recent. Uh, recent. I believe it was recently released via the Criterion Collection, and the Criterion Collection is always a really amazing way to experience your movies. So, um, and surprisingly, when we started doing digging on the interwebs about this movie, there's not a lot of people out there currently talking about it. And I don't think being John Malkovich is the perfect representation of the platonic forms in film. And I don't even think it's intentional. We're not sure. It was written by a guy named Charlie Coughlin, directed by a guy named Spike Jones, who have both been very tight lipped about their intentions of the movie. Yeah. So we don't really know what they were thinking because they haven't really told anybody yet, which is kind of cool. And it leaves us to uh, have heavy interpretations into it. Absolutely. And I do think the movie in a lot of ways does speak for itself. There are a lot of questions that it, its characters literally ask and scenes later in the movie, I think pretty clearly answer so, yeah, I say we jump in. And there are questions that are asked that don't get answered. Absolutely. So the whole premise of it is this dude is an out-of-work puppeteer who is married to this sort of uh, slightly neurotic, way too friendly with animals, not in a sexual way, but just like way too into animals that's healthy wife. And uh, he decides he needs to get a job because puppeteering doesn't pay the bills and he goes to work at a filing cabinet because he's a puppeteer. He's got really strong fingers. He's really good at filing things. And he discovers a portal to which when he goes into that portal, he gets to spend 15 minutes inside the consciousness of John Malkovich. Yeah. Noted actor of, you know, slightly below uh, B-list fame. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and John Malkovich is kind of a big deal. <laughs> yeah. He's extremely well respected as a performer. He's an excellent, excellent actor. And he gives a marvelous performance in this film as himself satirizing himself, but he was never an A-list star. And when we were digging about this, we were surprised to find out that, uh, when this movie was first making the rounds toward getting produced, which a lot of it was because it was so unproducible that people wanted to produce it. But, Network executives or uh, Hollywood executives really wanted to cast Tom Cruise and change the script to being Tom Cruise, which I think would have been uh, probably pretty disastrous. Yeah. But uh, yeah, there's something kind of magnetic about the the John Malkovich angle, uh, so specific and so strange and yet so perfect. Well, so right out of the gate, there are a few things that are happening about the nature of reality that just by virtue of the fact that there is a portal that exists into another person's consciousness. Yeah, I would even rewind. Uh, you know, the, the first scene that we see takes place in a puppet theater and a marionette is doing a dance of despair. And to begin your movie on a, a stage 
of any kind, even if there are human actors on it, tells us something about the movie we're about to see. It tells us that maybe there are going to be different levels of performance, uh, different stages on which things take place, but also the fact that we get a nearly lifelike copy of one of the main characters performing this dance on a puppet stage, and then we zoom out to uh, John Cusack's character pulling the strings of that puppet that looks exactly like him, is a, a really clear metaphor there for you know, the idea that there might be something bigger pulling the strings of what we do. And there might be a convincing-looking reality that isn't, <clears throat> isn't the whole story. Yeah. And I think the more intentional metaphor there is that you know, maybe we're not in control of our fate mm -hmm. is one of the, the, I'd say the prevailing philosophical theme is that uh, you don't really have free will. Uh, a life can be planned and plotted out. And I don't necessarily know how well that jives with Socrates and with Plato. And it probably doesn't. And I think that is the biggest philosophical theme. It's trying to extrapolate, is there free will or is there not free will? Mm, interesting. Um, in which it kind of resoundingly says, no, free will is not a thing. Um, it is an illusion. You know, everyone's a puppet on a string of some sort. But beyond all that, the very nature of a puppet plays really well into the allegory of the cave. Right. Because the puppet is just one part of the cave. And perception being part of how you exist in Plato's cave is central to the themes of this movie. When people can step out of their own perception and see the perception of another, everyone that does this romanticizes it. And some quite literally in that they start having romantic entanglements as they are inside the consciousness of, of John Malkovich. Some just because they need a romantic escape from the monotony of their life right. and to be a semi-famous actor for a brief, a brief period of time is an escape that they're, they're allowed. So right out of the gate, there's this idea that you can escape w the way you see the world and there's a better, higher way to, to see the world is very reminiscent of Plato in the forms. And I think where Charlie Kaufman is clever is that if you can break out of the forms in the Platonic sense, if you can be a being of pure essence you've kind of solved the riddle of existence, right? Like you've kind of done it. You figured it out. Sure. You're fucking Buddha. You're Jesus. You're in heaven, yeah. right? You're in Nirvana, whatever you want to call it. You've broken free. This movie says, Hey, you can do this. You can even pay someone that'll let you into the portal to do this, but you're not in heaven. You're in John fucking Malkovich. Yeah, so Plato, you're right. All of reality is a copy of another reality. But when you break free from that, you're just in John Malkovich. For 15 minutes, and then you're dropped on the side of the New Jersey Turnpike. Right. Which the, is probably most people's idea of hell. I, there's clearly this sort of metaphor of people getting this temporary escape, this temporary heaven, going then to this sort of like shitty, like hell place. It feels a little, and this is a bit of a boomerang even for myself, but the paying to uh, to achieve a higher level of consciousness or understanding, uh, it reminds me a little bit of the medieval Catholic church, uh, like paying for indulgences for 15 minutes to be wiped clean of your sins and be almost like a new person. 
Oh, you should explain what an indulgence is in case our listeners aren't Catholic. Yeah, so the medieval Catholic Church was pretty notorious for corruption and for uh, also being a bank. Um, but there were there were times that sinners were actually able to go into confession and just pay a lump sum of money to be forgiven for their sins rather than uh, doing the work of repenting or uh, you know working to make themselves better people. Uh, so there was definitely a, a culture of being able to buy your way out of hell. Right. And, um, well, so let's, let's get a little more into the nit and gritty. Cause I think you hit on a, a, a really interesting note here. So when the portal is first discovered, it's by the main character played by John Cusack. His character's name is Craig Schwartz. Craig Schwartz. Thank you for the, uh, the help there. Warts? Did you say warts? I can't understand what you're saying. And, well, he is in love with a character, not his wife, named Maxine, and he's trying to impress her by showing her and talking about the portal. And, you know, he is completely blown away by just the existence of it and all of the different philosophical questions that it brings up to bear. And her response is, let's charge people to go in it. Yeah. So right out of the gate, we see an argument of commodity over philosophy. Right. You know, and so Craig relents because he's in love with her and he is truly a despicable and weak human being. Yeah, he sure is. And because he's despicable and weak, he'll do whatever Maxine wants him to do so he can spend more time with her rather than explore the philosophical implications of being able to, to break into another a way of seeing the world to, to break out of one cave. Yeah. I would like to uh, just, just highlight a couple of lines that uh, Craig Schwartz has in that scene where he uh, tells Maxine about the experience that he had being John Malkovich. And he, he starts to sort of word vomit about the experience that he had. Uh, he starts asking all of these questions like, uh, I don't know what this means. Does this mean there's a God or blah, 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 blah. Is there a soul? Is there not a soul? Do you see what a metaphysical can of worms this portal is? And Maxine is unimpressed. She wants to charge money for it. Um, but I think that question of is there a soul is another, uh, another really prevalent theme in the film that ties directly back to Plato and Neoplatonism. Uh, which then in turn became a basis for a lot of Christianity or a lot of early Christianity. Well, that right. question of of the soul and the eternal, uh, I think, is central to that Platonic argument of a higher essence. Because if cup or chair has a higher essence, then every human being has higher essence, something that came before them and is eternal and represents that that thing in which it, the thing in every human which is forever. Right. And I think one of the major themes, other themes of the movie is mortality. Cause as the plot goes on and on, we come to find out that there's been a character who has discovered this portal into other people's consciousness who realizes at the age of 44, he can jump into this portal and live in this other person's body and do this over and over and over. Right. And bring in other consciousnesses to go with him. Right. And in a way has created a sort of uh, divine rebirth through the miracle of this portal. Right. It's a sort of sinister version of reincarnation, which is another thing that was very important to the Neoplatonists. They believed in a form of reincarnation that was this, you know, uh, 
coming together with the universal and then returning back to the world of the material and having that soul or that eternal thing about you inhabit another body, whether that's animal or human. And there's a, a moment, too, where Craig, uh, I think, that, that ties into this question of the soul and ties into this question of consciousness, uh, where Craig is sitting on the couch with uh, Elijah, uh, who is a chimpanzee that his, his wife, who runs a pet store, has brought home and lives with them. He sits with this monkey and he starts talking at the monkey about how hard his life is. And he looks at the monkey and he says, you know, it must be great to not be burdened with consciousness. And the monkey just sits there and is like, okay. I'm and a later, monkey. Yeah, I'm a monkey. And later in the movie, when we have uh, that awful moment when uh, when Craig is just desperate to make something happen with Maxine, so he goes to inhabit uh, John Malkovich once more. He ties Cameron Diaz, his wife, uh, Lottie, up in a cage with Elijah the monkey. And the monkey has a flashback to his life before when he was taken from the jungle and his parents had their hands bound and he wasn't able to save them. And he snaps out of this flashback and unties Cameron Diaz. And it's this beautiful moment where the film, at least the world of the film, confirms that even animals have souls and animals have memory and morality and consciousness. And I think that answers that earlier question about uh, about the John Malkovich portal, where John Cusack's character says, do we have a soul? Yes, the film is confirming that we do. And it's confirming that what you're doing by inhabiting another person's body is morally wrong because you are depriving that soul of its freedom. Well, and it also confirms that if I can go into a portal and live inside someone else's consciousness, it's making a statement that consciousness is inherently separate from the body. Right. Because they can be separated. Yeah. And that you could exist aside from your body in another body. Right. So it, it's making a statement that you, that consciousness, the soul, whatever uh, you want to call it, can be transferred from vessel to vessel. So it's making a clear metaphysical statement that there is a higher form of non physical consciousness that's transferable. Yeah. So, you know, but what it does is it completely demythologizes, demystifies it, and deromanticizes it. Yeah. You know, it's not this great and holy thing. It's just this fucking portal that exists inside this weird building. Behind a filing cabinet. Behind, yeah, like that just someone found. It was just like, oh, I can kind of use this to be immortal. Why don't I do it? Yeah. And shuck any responsibility to spiritual or philosophical thoughts or disciplines. So in it, it kind of postulates that Plato's kind of on to how this universe works, except in that it has meaning. You know, yeah. like the universe is kind of a copy of a higher form and, you know, consciousness can be achieved uh, or can be uh, expanded from one vessel to another, but it's not divine. It's not great. The, the characters that do it don't do it because they have some higher moral calling or have done any or sacrificed anything. You know, at one point, the group of people that want to enter John Malkovich's consciousness can't because Craig, as a puppeteer, took over his entire body and brain. Yeah. And is just living in John Malkovich. 
So to get John Malkovich, John Malkovich, the vessel back, they kidnapped Craig's John Malkovich's wife and threatened to kill her so they can get the vessel so that they can go in it. And they're kind of the heroes. Yeah. They're kind of the nice people. Yeah. And they fucking kidnapped a pregnant woman. And planned to like multiply spiritually inhabit someone else's body. Just so they could live forever crushing someone else's consciousness. Right. In the process and doing so happily. Yeah. So there are super moral ambiguities at play in this universe. Uh, but I think that that the idea of uh, of the cave is is extremely present, uh, even if it's not the most uh, most obvious, even if it's a more subtle cue that we get to it. But it's almost as though we complicated Plato, right? Well, yeah, it's it's the the play is real. Their play, pardon me, the cave is real. Mm-hmm. The way we experience the universe through the the cave analogy is fundamentally correct. Uh, all we can see is what we think is reality. There's another reality out there that we can't see, and if we could see it, it'd be fucking cool and great. The thing that Plato postulates is that virtue and and understanding the moral fiber of the universe is a way to see this essence and says, no, it's kind of just an accident. And and even if you see it, it doesn't mean it has any meaning or yeah. significance. You don't need to find God to do it. You just need to move a filing cabinet. And it's probably pretty absurd. It probably leads to a cult of old people trying to enter you or, uh, you know, someone who finds their true gender through inhabiting your body and finds their true love through the sexual experience of inhabiting your body. And why you? You're just a B-list actor. There's an absurdity and a bizarre quality that's almost reminiscent of of existentialism, of Sartre, uh, which in many ways is a reaction against Platonism, at least in my understanding of it. Uh, Sartre posits that Existence comes before essence, especially for human beings, that we were put here and we were put here on this planet kind of without a purpose. So it's up to us to make that purpose up. And sometimes we have to make patterns out of the truly cosmically strange and uh, unfamiliar things that are thrown our way rather than being born out of something that inherently has a deeper meaning. Well, I think the character Craig goes through the search for meaning. And I think he fills his lack of meaning with um, his obsession with the character Maxine. Mm -hmm. And I think his journey is one of trying to find purpose, trying to find free will. And also I think he kind of represents the sort of falseness of the strive for artistic ends for material needs, meaning he wants to be a puppeteer. He believes in the art of being a puppeteer. He's really good at being a puppeteer, but he's poor. It's not until he embodies the body of John Malkovich that he can make this commercially viable. So he has to steal the body of John Malkovich to make a living as a puppet puppeteer, meaning in another way, he really isn't a puppeteer because he loves puppetry. He's kind of a puppeteer because he loves himself because he loves his own pain. He's trying to deal with his own lack of meaning. He's got this 
beautiful wife that he just really doesn't give a shit about. Right. The entire time. Beautiful, compassionate wife. Well, turns out she doesn't give a shit about him either. You know, they're they're both equally fucked up. Oh, they're super up. broken, but... Yeah. Um, can I boomerang a little? Yeah. Uh, this is totally off topic, but a thought that kind of popped up in, into, you know, my gray matter. Is being John Malkovich anti-feminist? Well, I don't think so. I had a thought. Can I can I give my flesh out my thought? Yeah. So there are two female predominant female characters in it. Right. There's Maxine who takes sort of a alpha maleish role. Right? She is confident, cocky, uses people. I won't go so far as to say a sociopath, but not that much better than a sociopath. Lacks basic empathy and Sort of because of everyone's obsession, they get kind of get caught in her orbit. She kind of manipulates this to benefit her. And in the end, she ends up better than anyone because she's manipulated all of these events uh, to suit her needs. Then there's Lottie, Craig Schwartz's wife, who is obsessed with animals, who clearly is like longing to have like true love in her life. Not right. true love in like the true love, like romantic Hollywood version, but like she needs love in her life and doesn't have it. So she collects all of these animals. Yeah, she desperately wants a child. And the first time she's in John Malkovich and she gets to feel like a man is the first time she feels complete. And then the first time that she has John Malkovich as a man has sex with a woman. is the first time she feels powerful and in control feel like they took both of the female characters and relegated them to more man status or am I, what do you think? Interesting. I, I don't have that reading of it. It just popped um, into my no, head. So it could be bullshit. It's definitely interesting. My reading of it though was, I thought that all of the four main main characters of this. So if we're talking Lottie, Craig, Maxine and John Malkovich were exceedingly complex characters, even though they generally spoke their subtext, which I kind of found uh, alarming and uh, and disarming in a way. Uh, there's not a whole lot of hiding the meaning of what you're saying in this script. People really do say what they mean a lot of the time. Um, I, I, found, I found that all of those characters still had this incredibly intricate inner life. And to see Lottie's uh, Lottie's sort of ecstatic experience of of being in a different body, which to anybody would be a spiritual reckoning, would be a moment of like intense ecstasy or shock or fear. And to see her reaction to that be this sort of questioning of her own gender, this questioning of her sexuality was a, a something I've never seen on screen before. True. And <laughs> yeah. True. <laughs> uh, and interesting in the way that it, it examines gender questions, especially for the questions that we all have to, we all find ourselves asking today, uh, which somehow determines where people should pee. Um, but what truly happens in the end is that I do think that Maxine changes as well, but Lottie and Maxine are able to find a love that is, that is true and is real and, uh, and comes from their, you know, shared experiences, maybe as John Malkovich or with John Malkovich, but it helps them to unlock a different part of themselves they didn't know was there before. Uh, Lottie even says that, you know, she's kind of excited by the things in men that are feminine. 
and excited by the things in women that are masculine. And so there's a sort of, there's a really beautiful thing that she's experiencing that she's got this kind of apotheosis of gender. Yeah, she kind of, so the character Lottie gets into John Malkovich, leaves and just goes down this path of like, am I transgendered? Because I, that's how much I enjoyed being a man. And she ends up having a relationship with Maxine when she is inhabiting John Malkovich. So she inhabits right. John Malkovich and has sex with Maxine and they kind of think they fall in love. Right. And Maxine very explicitly is saying that, you know, have you ever felt what it feels like to have two sets of eyes, you know, want you with that much lust and that much desire through the same body? Because uh, that's intoxicating for her, that feeling of of wanting, of somebody wanting her that much. Well, it's narcissism. It is narcissism. You know, she's and a total narcissist. She sure is. But... The, the fact that, you know, later she's she's putting the Lottie puppet to bed after her, you know, many years of marriage to John Malkovich. Eight months. Eight months of marriage <laughs> to John Malkovich and her subsequent pregnancy. John Malkovich Craig at this point. It gets right. confusing, guys. See yeah. the fucking movie. But she realizes that, that the baby that she's carrying is a product of her union with John Malkovich inhabited by Lottie. And I think that's transformative for her. Uh, and I think they truly do become become lovers. I think they truly do love each other. And I think that's a, a beautiful, beautiful transformation for both of those characters. Yeah, uh, it, it comes out of a lot of people's like, of like course a, it lot, does. a lot. So a lot have to a lot have to suffer immensely. Craig yeah. gets the worst deal. Yeah, uh, we won't spoil every aspect of it, um, you know, in terms of the end. But Craig gets the worst deal. Yeah, but Craig also chooses the worst deal. I have no sympathy for any of the main characters other than John Malkovich, yeah, who had no choice. Yeah, everybody's fucked up. So of Lottie, Maxine, and Craig, all three of them are fucking terrible. Yeah, they're all fucked all up. All of them are awful. And Lottie and Craig are, like, at least Maxine is sort of honest about her terrible. She's yeah. like, hi, I'm Maxine. I'm terrible. I'll fucking ruin your life. Yeah. Do you want to hang out? Then you better be okay that I smoke. You know, at, you know, on the other hand, Maxine and, or I'm sorry, Lottie and Craig, they sort of play this, this humble, starving artist role. In reality, they're both despicable narcissists that have been lying to themselves. And it comes to four-way in this movie, and Craig's life gets ruined, and Lottie kind of gets off scot-free. Mm. I feel like Lottie is a little... Lottie is motivated more honestly and Lottie is motivated out of more compassion than I think Craig is. Cause C Craig compassion to who no one, but her own desires. Okay. Right. Like anyway, let's rail it back in to yeah. our thesis here. I do also want to just point out, um, for consumers of contemporary movies, uh, Maxine is played beautifully by, uh, Catherine Keener, who is an incredible actress who recently was in get out. Um, also a fantastic movie. Uh, Get Out is, it, it takes a lot, lot, lot of cues from being John Malkovich. Uh, if you haven't seen it, spoiler warning, but the central premise, spoiler warning, is that uh, potentially well-meaning liberal white people take over the uh, the bodies of uh, strong or young. Uh, athletic, young, handsome um, 
physically fit black people and appropriate their bodies with um, with their their white consciousness. consciousness. Yeah. yeah, but Catherine Keener plays a, a character who hypnotizes our our lead character into uh, a, a state of spiritual um, shackles. Essentially, she she uh, diminishes his consciousness through hypnotism so that another consciousness can be put into his mind and he can be locked away, which is what happens to John Malkovich uh, for a good portion of this movie. Uh, and Craig. Yeah. And Craig. Yeah. Uh, very, very, very good call. out. Also great movie. Get mm-hmm. out. You know, another thing to bring it back to Plato, if you would permit me. No. Uh, one of the central questions of Socrates was justice. And what mm. is just and what is the just society? And I think one of the central questions of being John Malkovich is in the face of, you know, really weird circumstances, what's the right thing to do? And I think one of the things that we see kind of postulated in this movie is when all of the main characters lose sight of, you know, what's really the right thing to do. And who's really the victim in being John Malkovich? It's John Malkovich. Mm-hmm. You know, what? what's the right thing to do? Well, leave this poor person's fucking consciousness alone. Right. And deal with your own shit in your own way. And you in know? your own body. And in your own body is the right thing to do. And the fact that no one of the characters chooses this, I think is telling about this movie, about what it's ultimately saying about morality and metaphysics. I think it's saying like all actions kind of have meaning and they, they definitely have consequences. Sure. And there is something to say that you should do the moral thing. And when nobody does the moral thing, look at this and maybe it means nothing to do the right thing. Like maybe doing the right thing in other words is not meaningful in any major philosophical way, whether that's, I do the right thing because there's a moral universe in which I want to act accordingly. I do the right thing because there is a divine substance in which I'm trying to get closer to. I do the right thing because there's an afterlife I'm trying to get to, you know, maybe none of those reasons to do the right thing are, are actually correct in any real metaphysical way, but it still fucking matters to do the right thing. Cause you just might destroy someone else's consciousness. Right. I think think is a a thing that we see in the movie. Yeah, I agree. Um, Another, another question I think left open uh, by this movie, but answered pretty beautifully by uh, Plato and Socrates is, uh, is that question of mortality and that question of death. Uh, If there is a world of forms, if there is a higher reality than ours, if there's an afterlife as it's you know manifested in some permutations of Platonism, if there's a universal, it means we don't have to fear death. And this is something that I know in, in Plato's Apology, uh, where he, he writes down uh, Socrates in court in his final days. Um, you lose that fear of death when you understand that there is something greater or there's something outside of your cave that you live in. And, you know, maybe that's a pipe dream. Maybe that's just something we tell ourselves to feel better about uh, an existence that could be meaningless. Maybe that's something that helps us sleep at night. Maybe that's something that just helps allay some of our fears. 
but maybe that maybe that's a good thing. Can I give a little context to Plato's Apology? Please. So in ancient Athens, Socrates is going around and he's getting a pretty big following. But one of his prime motivations in his dialogues, kind of to point out the flaws of thinking or the flaws of institutions or the flaws of how people saw themselves. And he wanted people to realize this on his own. So instead of him just walking up and telling someone, hey, you're an idiot and you're wrong, he would ask them a whole series of questions that would get them ultimately thinking, oh shit, <clears throat> oh shit, I'm an idiot and I was wrong. Yeah, messed and up. this was pissing people off politically in Athens, according to Plato. And uh, Socrates, this entire time that he was around, he always said that he had this spirit that he talked to, that there was him and the spirit and he had these conversations. Now, whether this was a literal belief of Socrates or a metaphor, up for debate, but it's something that Plato documented many times. Well, Socrates had so many followers, he had pissed off so many prominent people, and he was talking about this spirit that he ended up getting going to trial for impiety, saying that mm -hmm. he was claiming he had this, like, his own divine right to these divine beings that no one knew, they weren't sanctions by Athens, and really, it was he was ticked off because he kept telling everybody how stupid democracy was, which he was not a fan of democracy. Okay, yeah. Uh, famous quote of... of Plato's until philosophers are kings or kings are philosophers. There is no hope for the state. Anyway, I digress. Um, they end up putting him to trial and sentencing him to death. And his followers try to break him out and say, Socrates, you know, come on, man, we got you. Get out of this prison. And Socrates looks at the poison that he's been commanded by the law to drink. And he drinks the poison. Because to him... A, there's no reason to fear death. It's not rational to fear death once you truly understand philosophy and understand the way of the world. And B, that he lived by the morality of Athens his whole life. Who was he to say that the Athenian courts were wrong? Mm. And drinks the hemlock in Plato's Apology, which he wrote about Socrates' death. And if we think about it, there's a major metaphor happening there. One, that perhaps the clever and, and best of us, we always end up destroying. You know, the, in the cave, there's this idea of, hey, if someone can see out of the cave, would everyone else kill that person? Right. Was Socrates the one that saw outside of the cave and everyone was so annoyed that they killed him? Mm. And two... You kind of have to, when chips are down, kind of put your money where your mouth is. If you lived by a set of principles your entire life, who are you to compromise those principles just to save your life? What is your life? You know, and what if your life isn't as important? What if there's something more important than your life? Are interesting thoughts to ruminate? You know, the thing that's interesting about being John Malkovich, none of those questions are even there. No. And I think... The fact that that story takes place in America in the 1990s, early mm -hmm. 2000s, I think perhaps Spike Jones and Charlie Kaufman are saying to us, why the fuck aren't we asking these questions? You know, I think that's where they're at. Why aren't we asking these questions? If Americans found a miracle, a real fucking miracle, a portal into someone else's consciousness, what would they do with it? They'd commodify it. 
or use it to escape their own death instead yeah. of trying to understand it. In other words, maybe we haven't learned anything from Socrates yet. Maybe. You know, before we go to the game, uh, I'd like to just leave us with a little bit of recommended reading or recommended viewing, if you will. Um, we chose specifically to focus on this movie because we wanted to put more out in the world about the way that this, uh, this story confronts questions of being and reality and what is real and what is the soul. Uh, but if you're looking for a little more uh, of Plato's allegory of the cave in modern storytelling, you don't have to look too far. Um, Inception is a really amazing example of what it's like to experience different levels of reality and question whether the reality you see is the real one at all and whether or not we have the capacity for original thought or whether it all comes from someplace else. Uh, there's other movies like The Truman Show, uh, which takes place in a reality show where the one man who's the subject has no idea that he's the subject of a worldwide reality show and his world is completely fabricated by outside forces. Uh, the Matrix is a story where we're all Truman and we're all fooled into thinking that this material culture that we live in is the real world when what's outside might be uglier but truer. Uh, this, this allegory makes its way into so much of our popular culture because I think we are still struggling with that question of whether or not our existence is real. And I think that's a, it's not a uniquely postmodern experience. It's not a uniquely postmodern question. We're going to be asking it until the end of the world. We've been asking it since the beginning. That's not true, though. We haven't been asking it since the beginning. Well, until the Greeks. I was exaggerating and poeticizing. Oh, pardon Forgive me for ruining me. the 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 romanticness <laughs> of your moment there. I I do apologize. It's well, well that's the oh, God. I snobbed out. Well, that's not true. <laughs> hey, we haven't been asking it specifically. It's wow. I totally comic book Simpson comic book guy. <laughs> Actually, the first documented no. Yeah, I just worst send off ever. Yeah, no, I mean it's a really really valid point. And um, I, I, I'll tell you guys just a totally separate story, total side tangent. I have a good friend who's a physicist and he's really, really smart and brilliant and like way smarter than I am. You know, I remember just having a conversation with him, just wondering, you know, like, you know, like, what is all of this? You know, like, what does all this mean? You know, and he looked at me and he said, name one really big question science has been able to answer. He's like, all of the mysteries that drive humanity are driving us still. We don't have answers to any of them. And in fact, the closer we get to answers, the more questions that come. Yeah. And I think in that vein, there's still room for us to wax philosophical and to think, okay, what does it really mean to be alive? Because we don't truly have the answers to that. We don't really know much more than the ancient Greeks in any true, in, in terms of finding the true meaning of existence yet. We've learned so much more about how the universe works, how to fix diseases, how to big build big and terrible and awesome and great things. Like we've learned so many useful things, but we don't still have any of the real answers. 
And uh, I think one thing that being John Malkovich shakes you out of is the apathy of just going along and just not giving a shit. Like ask the questions and look for the answers. I think is one of the the biggest points of it. You may not have any free will. You may just end up being the vessel for another consciousness at the end of the day. Right. Like that might be what it is. But while you're not, do something about it. Yeah. Um, I, I will just undercut real quick and say that science has come up with one answer at least. And that's 42. 42. Should we play a game? To the game. All right. So every week here on the Midnight Myth podcast, we sometimes get a little heady. So we like to bring it back down to earth by playing a little game. And we would love for you to play along at home. So if you have a response to this, please tweet us at the Midnight Myth on Twitter or visit us on Facebook. Just search the Midnight Myth podcast or drop us a line on our website, www.midnightmyth.com. And according to our analytics, there's about a thousand of you fuckers listening. Oh my God. So tweet us one of these goddamn games or if you want us to stop Stop the games, stop the games, because we're not doing it just for us. We're doing it for you, too. All right, we're being nice. And uh, if, I'm not. <laughs> one last note before we play the game. If you enjoy what you hear, please tell a friend, tell a neighbor, tell someone in the grocery store, tell your enemies. Uh, Find and, a portal to another consciousness and plant that idea there. And get on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts and rate us or leave a review. It really helps us get out there and helps other people pine. Other people find the pod. Okay, game? Game. All right, what's the question? Uh, So the game this week is if we were to find a portal into a celebrity that we could go and hang out and be in their consciousness, what celebrity would that be and why? So we have our own being John Malkovich portal, except it's not John Malkovich. We get to pick the celebrity and we only get uh, what the requisite thirty minutes or so in yeah, the consciousness. Yeah, before we're dropped on the. New and Jersey then we go turnpike. to the New Jersey Turnpike, or name whatever terrible turnpike is in your neighborhood. <laughs> like if you're listening in Alabama. Anyway, go Laurel. Uh, Bjork. Okay. Yeah. Um. Uh. No questions asked. No, I would totally just like warg into Bjork anytime because she's so weird and wonderful, and I think she's remarkably talented, both as a vocalist and like a performance artist. Um, and I just want to know what's going on inside her head. I uh, kind of have a theory that she lives inside a tree in Iceland. And I would love to see what that looks like. And if she just like dances with fairies all day long, I just think she's a magical human being. And I would love to know what it's like to be Bjork. Well done. I would go into Christopher Lloyd. Whoa. Absolutely. That's amazing. Yeah, I would totally go into Christopher Lloyd. Because um, I was thinking I would go into Rick, but uh, but like Rick's not an actual celebrity. He's a cartoon. From but, Rick and Morty. Yeah, but oh, that's okay. basically like, that's like going into Rick. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know what Christopher Lloyd is actually like as a person, but I like that he's tall. That's cool because <laughs> I'm tall. Um, so I, I want to go into someone tall. I like that he, he seems like he's probably quirky and weird. And I would like, if I could do this, let me go into another sort of, not a list, but pretty awesome, you know, who's made some great movies, but never's made like the greatest movies out there. Though Back to the Future is pretty great. But like you guys get what I'm saying. Like Back to the Future is a fun, great movie. Yeah. But it's not like, you know, Schindler's List or or The Godfather. Yeah. So I kind of would want to see what Christopher Lloyd is like and how he sees the world. So I go into Christopher Lloyd. Yeah. And you might have like really mundane, but sort of amazing moments where he's ordering towels from a catalog or he's like getting Grubhub or something. 
I would like to see like Christopher Lloyd. Maybe he like goes to a restaurant and someone's just like, oh, hey, hey, aren't you that guy in that uh, uh, that movie about, um, you know, something that Christopher Lloyd was never in? And just watch him lose his fucking mind. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, no, I'm from I'm from Back to the Future. Remember me. I was in one flew over a cuckoo's nest. It's a fucking classic. Oh, my God. It's amazing. Anyway, until next time, be kind. One more thing. As Socrates or Socrates might say, all we are is dust in the wind. Be kind. Be kind.